Geopolitics and Empire is joined by Manuel Suarez Mier, who is an economist and former central bank official, economic diplomat, and professor at Georgetown and American universities. We'll be taking a look at Mexico and why he thinks this will be the year of President López Obrador's unraveling, why Mexico's economy looks bleak, and where the United States fits in. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Suarez Mier. My pleasure. It's great to be with you here. Now, you've recently written quite the article at Asia Times that uh, Mexico's prospects in 2020 are bleak and that its economy, institutions, and democracy are at stake. You believe that 2020 will mark the unraveling of Andres Manuel López Obrador or AMLO's presidency. I thought I'd chime in before giving you the floor. You know, I'm a recently naturalized uh, Mexican citizen, and I, I truly do do feel Mexican in, in culture and, and spirit. Uh, I didn't get citizenship in time to vote for the elections, but regarding AMLO, you know, I considered one thing going for him was his anti-establishment position. But now, after all that is said and done, I feel he hasn't delivered. And dare I say, he and his administration seem incompetent to deal with the great issues facing the nation. So can you perhaps now tell us, you know, why do you see Mexico's near-term future to be so bleak and that this could be the year of AMLO's uh, unraveling? For several reasons. First of all, it's clear in the 15 months that he has been in office that there is no learning curve. This is the same AMLO who ran for president in 2006, and he keeps repeating the same occurrences, the same weird ideas that have no sustenance, and uh, there's no learning whatsoever on the job learning for him. He initially was convinced that uh, he should be very careful with the macroeconomic picture of the country, and he was. But if you look at the figures, the only reason why they ended up having a little primary surplus in the budget, that is, surplus once you uh, ignore interest payments uh, on the national debt. That primary surplus is misleading because they used a fund that uh, was created many years ago to confront major crises that come from the outside, like the 2008 crisis. And uh, the Ministry of the Treasury had been saving money for such occurrences. And in order to to balance the books last year, the Ministry of Finance had to take about half of the funds in, in that trust fund, half of the monies in that uh, trust fund, which means the monies left for uh, confronting crisis and stuff like that have been diminished and they will probably be pushed to do the same this year, in which case that fund will be depleted. Now, that means that on the ground, they are running a fiscal deficit, which is exactly the opposite of what they promised they would do. And the reason is very simple. Tax revenues are down quite substantially, income tax and value-added tax, because economic activities is uh, flat or, or negative. So you cannot collect taxes on an economy which is shrinking, uh, which is exactly what's happening. On top of which, Mexico has, in order to keep an exchange rate reasonably in check, as it has been in the last year, uh, the Bank of Mexico has kept interest rates very high at 7.5% at the prime rate currently, which are the highest interest rates in any country in the world, except those which are in, in a critical situation like Argentina. In terms of real interest rates, once you eliminate inflation, uh, these are the highest rates. And that means that you have investment from, coming from abroad. The issues for this year that will come to a crisis 
will be the finances of Pemex, the, the, the oil petroleum monopoly in the hands of government that AMLO wants very much to strengthen. And um, it's, it's a bankrupt proposition because uh, that company uh, is bankrupt. Basically, it has a debt load that cannot be paid by its revenues and that demands huge transfers from the government, which the, the current administration is, is doing. But uh, uh, that means that it will require more money, which the government no longer has. Uh, that means that the rating agencies uh, of Mexico's debt will probably downgrade Pemex uh, this year. They, they are already uh, on the brink of being downgraded. And if that happens, that means a possible downgrade for the sovereign debt of Mexico. And that in turn means that all the trust funds and all the pension funds that have money invested in Mexico in fixed income uh, instruments will have to flee the Mexican market because by the rules by, by which they operate force, forces them to only invest in assets that are okay, that have a AAA uh, ranking, which Mexico would lose. And that would probably mean a, an outflow of uh, between 100 and $150 billion, which is a sizable chunk of the reserve of the Bank of Mexico. And that added to no investment, no domestic investment, and no foreign direct investment would create a very serious balance of payment uh, crisis. That would be the, 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 the drop that unbalances the whole uh, very precarious uh, equilibrium that they have managed. How ca catastrophic can this situation uh, become? Does it have the potential to be something like the 1990s tequila crisis? It could because, uh, you know, confidence is, is very difficult to keep once you lost it. And AMLO has been eroding at confidence of economic agents, and that means investors from abroad as well as domestic ones from the very beginning. What has kept the macroeconomic picture more or less quiet has been that, as I mentioned, that they've been fiddling with the, with the figures and using resources that are not renewable. I think that that could create a, a panic situation once you see that there is a large amount of uh, foreign exchange leaving the country, capital flight by foreign investors who are no longer able to invest in Mexico because of the downgrading of its uh, credit status. That means that you have a run also by Mexican investors and savers that will see clearly that the situation is untenable. And yes, that, that can uh, lead to, to a financial crisis uh, very much in the form that we had in 1994 or 1982. And your thoughts on, on, the, on the currency, for example, um, I'm noticing around the world a lot of uh, currencies are experiencing problems. Uh, when I first arrived to Mexico in 2010, the peso was 10 pesos to the dollar, and now it's 20 pesos to the dollar. Uh, I'm currently here in Kazakhstan, and just a few years ago, it was, uh, well, I think, 150 Kazakh tenge to the dollar, and now we're almost at 400 Kazakh tenge to the dollar. And so, um, how do you think that w what will happen to the to the peso? I mean, is it just going to c continue devalue devaluing? No, the, the the valuation that we've had in the last decade has been sort of quite gradual. And, and just reflecting the differences in inflation rates between uh, Mexico and the rest of the world, particularly the U.S., its main trading partner. But uh, 
what what you can expect if you have a sudden change in expectations for the worse uh, is a much much worse dire situation in which you would have an abrupt fall in the peso as we have seen in Argentina last year that the peso went from 20 or 30 pesos per, per dollar to 100 i don't know how it's uh, trading today it, it, it uh, bounced back to something like 80 but last time i saw but in any case in any case uh, it would be a rather uh, steep depreciation of the currency which by the way amlo boasts every day that uh, shows that markets have confidence in him that's not the case what markets are doing is taking advantage of high interest rates and the expectation that the currency will remain uh, more or less stable in the short term. But everyone suspects or knows that in the long and medium and long term, that will not be the case. And, and that's on top of everything else that's going on. You have a country in which insecurity has increased quite substantially in the first year of his administration, despite his promises that he would end uh, violence by a new strategy of uh, embraces and not shots, not gunshots, uh, which has been uh, ridiculous and has made Mexico the laughing stock of the rest of the world. So you have violence increasing everywhere. Uh, you have crisis produced by the incompetence of um, AMLO's government, uh, like uh, the scarcity of medicines in the public uh, health system. Uh, and they, they provoked that. They ordered the previous administration, the Peña Nieto administration in um, 1918, to stop purchases of medicines uh, that normally take place in the last semester of the year uh, to be able to stock for the next year. So they ordered the sitting administration to stop any purchases because they were going to revise everything and make sure that there was, quote, no corruption. Um, the fact was that as uh, the year started and, and AMLO became president, the medicines started being more scarce and the, the scarcity crisis has uh, mounted and you have a, a very serious breakdown in the health system of the country in, in which they replaced uh, what was more or less working, which is a, a an insurance policy for everyone with uh, an institute government-run institute that centralizes medicine that aspires to be something like uh, the health care system of Canada or the UK, but uh, without the knowledge or the resources or anything to back it up. So it has broken down and it's a complete disaster. And everywhere you turn in the real economy, that's, that's exactly what's happening. Uh, look at migration. AMLO came into office promising to be the welcome country to migrants from everywhere in the world who wanted to go to the U.S. or whatever they, their destinies took them. Words create incentives and incentives have consequences. So suddenly you had a flow of migrants, mostly from Central America, but also from the rest of the world. And now you had Africans and, and Haitians and people from all over the world uh, trying to get to the U.S. via Mexico. And Mr. Trump notices that and immediately threatens Mexico with uh, tariffs on its exports to his country. And that was the end of that. At that moment, AMLO reversed course 180 degrees and put the, the newly formed 
National Guard, which is basically the, the army, instead of being in charge of the national security and citizen security in the country, he put it in charge of stopping immigrants from getting beyond the, the U.S.-Guatemala border and uh, trapping them along the way. So the human, uh, the human rights violations in this case are atrocious and, and uh, they are starting to be documented by international groups that do this sort of thing. Uh, on top of which, in the North, uh, they accepted what uh, Mr. Trump demanded, uh, which is to accept all the, the refuse of asylum seekers in, in the U.S. from other countries, which are processed by the legal system of the U.S., but the legal system of the U.S. in charge of that has a backlog of uh, several years. Uh, they don't have enough resources, enough judges specialized in asylum. So it's, it's a mess. What the, the Trump administration did was to pass that burden to Mexico. And now you have 75,000 non-Mexicans waiting for their asylum uh, uh, applications in the U.S., but waiting in Mexico, creating another another human rights mess and uh, taxing the scarce resources of the Mexican government, which has not done anything to accommodate such guests in, in any decent way. Uh, whatever Mr. Trump decides to, to do is accommodated by uh, AMLO and his government. Uh, obediently, they are the, the wel welcoming mat of Mr. Trump. And that's why Trump, in a recent speech, said that uh, Mexico was indeed paying for the world. That's exactly what's happening. Mexico itself has become Mr. Trump's war. And Mexico is paying for the National Guard, and Mexico is paying for the refugees that come back while they wait for the asylum trials and so on and so forth. On top of which, Mr. AMLO decided to go ahead and uh, insist in a much watered-down free trade agreement with the U.S. Watered-down, the, the, the new trade agreement is a disaster for Mexico because it's not free trade, it's managed trade of the worst kind. It taps the maximum uh, salaries that uh, uh, workers, uh, the minimum salaries that workers can be paid in certain industries to an absurd number that came out of the hat of someone of $16 per hour. Now, you cannot fix salaries by decree. Salaries are the result of productivity of the workers in an environment which helps them to be productive, which is not what happens in Mexico. Uh, the environment is totally against the productivity of workers, and that's a problem of bad, bad policies of the government. Just to give you an example, a Mexican worker that crosses the border to the U.S. is six times more productive than in Mexico. The same worker, despite the fact that he has a different language that he doesn't necessarily understand, different customs that he doesn't have the support of his family and friends, he is in an alien and not, not necessarily very welcoming atmosphere in the U.S. Why is he more productive? Because everything around him allows him to be more productive. He is able to get to his job by efficient transport in the morning, unlike Mexico. He doesn't face electricity interruptions several times a day, like in Mexico, and so on. You, you take the, the life of a, a worker in Mexico and the same worker in the U.S., and it's totally different. Therefore, given the circumstances and, and uh, 
the environment that surrounds him, he's far more productive, six times more productive in the U.S. You don't increase wages in Mexico by decree, which is what the new U.S.-Mexico-Canada trade agreement does. You increase them by working at uh, improving the environment that surrounds uh, the worker, and this is something that this government has not done. Uh, Public works are are, uh, nowhere to be seen. They haven't done any uh, useful public work, but they keep they cancelled the Mexico New Mexico City Airport, uh, which was going to be uh, one of the best in the world uh, of the quality of the new airport in Istanbul or Beijing. They cancelled that by the fact that it was 35% built and it was paid for by debt that had been already placed and long-term debt that was going to be serviced by the taxes of passengers that would flow into that airport. All of that shattered by the decision, the puerile decision of AMLO, who disliked the the project because he said that the poor country cannot have uh, a a good airport. It should have an appropriate airport for poor people, which I guess it's a a poor airport. And now he's building one in 70 kilometers away from Mexico City in an Air Force base, which is a complete, complete nonsense. He keep, he wants to keep the Mexico City airport uh, operating, despite the fact that the airspace of those two airports are conflicting. So, the, you know... Uh, you cannot govern the country, the 14th largest economy in the world, by whatever occurs to you that morning or whatever prejudices you have been fostering for years, which is exactly what Ablo and his accomplices have been doing for the last 15 months. I, uh, what's really surprising has been the resilience of the country and of the economy not to fall down faster. I, I, I confess that I predicted a much faster destruction of the country and much faster bad, terrible results. But those have not happened yet, but will happen this year. I've also had the feeling, uh, as you, things getting worse. And I'm also kind of surprised that it hasn't gotten worse uh, sooner. He's also tried uh, raffling off or selling the presidential plane, which you which you wrote about, as well as he didn't show up to Davos. And, you know, some of these things I, I think are important. You know, we might have, some people might have disdain for groups such as Davos, but I think it's important uh, from a diplomatic perspective to, to show up, that there's a value there. And I think it's important to have a the, the diplomatic function of a presidential plane to, to get around and get things done. And in your article, you pointed out, uh, that Mexico doesn't even own the plane. So, I mean, is is this true that that Mexico can't um, is not even can't sell the plane? No, it's a it's a lease. the the the, uh, the plane was leased. The DC was uh, um, Banobras, the Mexican Infrastructure Bank in Mexico, and the leaseor was Boeing. Or Boeing has a a, a branch, a, a, an associate corporation that that is in the business of leasing planes. So it was a lease, just like like you lease a car. Uh, you you have the, the use of the car, but you cannot sell the car. That's exactly the case. That's number one. Number two, I, I used the, the the case of an um, airplane as a metaphor that they they keep coming with these hair-brained ideas uh, that don't make any sense and. They 
put them as priorities instead of solving the real problems of the economy. Some people su suggest that they are just sort of <clears throat> taking the, the attention away from the real problems, which are there and uh, will not go anywhere and will uh, come back to content. So the, 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 the whole absurd idea of the plate is, is ridiculous. Now, on, on the issue of um, uh, AMRO not traveling abroad, I, I happen to agree completely with him. I mean, it would be shameful in, uh, to, to see such an uncouth, ignorant man representing Mexico in international fora. It would be a shame. So I'm, I'm, at least I'm glad that he has decided to keep himself away from, from international travel because he would be shaming the country and uh, dragging it down to his level which is very much the uh, swamps of Tabasco. That's, but that's why he, his nickname is Pejelagarto, which is sort of a, 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 an amphibious reptile that uh, lives in the swamps of Tabasco. Uh, you don't want that character uh, uh, being uh, paraded around in international meetings and, and meeting uh, statesmen and so on and so forth. It would be it would be horrible. So in that, in that sense, I agree with him. Some of my Mexican friends who are supporters of AMLO are, are not going to enjoy this interview. <laughs> um, so you, you mentioned uh, NAFTA II, or the U.S.-Mexico-Canada uh, agreement, and in one of your articles you cited a fellow uh, uh, at Cato who called it the worst trade agreement uh, ever made, I, I believe. But looking also at, at, at China, it seems we, we've got this new Cold War uh this global rivalry between china and the us and china's with its belt and road project it's it's all over the place do you see china making any significant inroads uh, into mexico well uh, i haven't seen any signs of that happening yet the chinese were very close to many latin american countries in the last decade uh, basically to buy raw material uh, so they, they, they were in, in Venezuela for the oil and other mining products. They were in Argentina for the grains and so on and so forth. And they, uh, I, I'm not sure they made a very good business because they lent uh, a lot of money to these countries, which are not going to be paying anytime soon. So Mexico was not in that league because Mexico was not in the business of selling raw materials, but selling industrial products and competing with the with the Chinese in the U.S. market. So we were competing economies rather than complementary economies. How do I see the prospects of China coming big time in Mexico? Not very strong for the same reason that uh, AMLO has decided to be uh, the, the docile puppet of Mr. Trump. See the scandal that Trump uh, has raised in relation to Huawei coming into the U.K., He's, he's uh, outraged and he told Boris Johnson terrible things. I mean, the, the Whitehall was appalled by the language. I don't see why anyone would be appalled by anything Mr. Trump does, but that's a different matter. There were, the Chinese had proposed to the Mexican government in the previous administration to do 5G Wi-Fi in the whole country free. And the previous administration recanted because of pressures from the U.S., now, this administration is far more obsequious to the Americans than the previous one. So I don't see, uh, I don't see the Chinese coming and doing anything in, in a large scale. It would be very welcome that they came to do some infrastructure works 
which they have proven to be very competent at doing. And uh, now that AMRO is doing, guess with whom? Not contractors from anywhere in the world, not competitive bidding. He's asking the army to build a new airport. He's asking the army to build a new railroad. And uh, the, the army is doing all sorts of strange things that they never used to do. Uh, let's see how this thing ends. But I don't, I don't think the Chinese are going to be very welcome or that they will find any appetizing projects in, in Ambos, Mexico in the near future. There are a few articles uh, you've written for at Cato uh, that deal with the dangers of the national security state uh, and censorship and the growth of autocracy. And I think if we look around the world, we can see these trends uh, of growing censorship, surveillance, uh, security, militarization states, including in the West. Um, do you feel there exists the real danger or potential for autocracy in either the U.S. or even Mexico? Well, in Mexico, certainly. I mean, uh, all the all of what the the crux of the political project of AMLO is to centralize power in his hands. All of it, and that's why he's fighting all the autonomous entities that were created uh, in order to take the decisions away from uh, the central government and be more uh, be a fairer judge, a fair judge vis-a-vis -vis the private sector and so on in issues like electricity and oil bidding and so on. So he's neutralizing or canceling all the autonomous entities that had been created by uh, by many previous administrations of, of all sorts. I mean, not only the PRI, but the PAN. His next, uh, his next target is the National Electoral Institute, where he will have to uh, the chance to renew four of I believe are 12 members of the the council, and uh, that that could neutralize many of the, its decisions. So he wants to recentralize elections back uh, as they were in the 1980s and early 90s to control them from the government. So, and he also has sent a a law uh, or a project, legislative project that uh, would curtail. Uh, freedom of speech and, and writing. He, of course, he says the opposite in his daily, I, I hesitate to call them uh, press conferences. They are more like homilies of a religious nature, but in his daily things uh, every morning, he constantly lambasts the so-called adversaries that uh, write critically of him and uh, uh, this has been reflected by a project, by a new project, uh, a legal project that would curtail freedoms of publishing and uh, in the in the media, in the spoken and televised media as well. See, in 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 authoritarian governments, they m more or less tolerate the written word more than the the TV and and other uh, visual and auditive media uh, for the simple reason that fewer people read uh, so the danger is is less acute so what what has happened uh, already and look at the scenery of Mexico's uh, uh, broadcast radio and and television newscasts 
the most critical elements of uh, those programs have been um, removed. You have Carlos Loret de Mola out of Televisa. He's no longer on, on, on the TV. You have Joaquin Lopez Origa out of uh, the TV and a series of other uh, well-known critical commentators with many years of experience have been removed. Sarmiento is out of his morning uh, newscast, etc. So this is, this is just by a gentle, quote, quote, gentle pressure on the broadcasters, which, as you know, this is a concession from the government. Uh, both television and radio are not property of anyone but the sovereign property of the nation, and the nation can uh, allow private activity, but in the form of a concession, and the concession can be withdrawn at any time. Okay, that's uh, the Mokul's uh, 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 spade on top of everyone's, every uh, radio and television producer producer's head. Uh, if they are disliked by the government, they can cancel the concession and they are out of work. Um, what they intend to do now is to uh, codify that in a law that would be far more restrictive and that would allow people to be sued in, in, in the most, uh, without really any, any solid foundation. So let's see if that law eventually is adopted or not. But so far, the threat is there. Coming down to one of my final questions was, um, back to the economy, there's a sentiment that we're on the cusp of a catastrophic global financial collapse. Uh, meanwhile, the economy keeps chugging along and stocks continue to hit highs. And what's your general economic outlook, I guess, globally in North America, Europe for 2020 and beyond? Uh, are we on the cusp of some you know, new global financial crisis or are we going to be all right? Look, economists are not qualified to predict the future. I think the only reason why there are meteorologists uh, in the world is to uh, help critics of economists uh, because they are even worse than economists, okay? Econometrics is not, nothing more than uh, a sophisticated uh, way of predicting the future based on what happened in the past. Very few people, and you can count them with the hands, with the, with the fingers of, of one hand, perhaps in the case of the U.S., predicted the 2007 uh, meltdown, housing meltdown that led to the th 2008 crisis. Everyone in the big institutions, the, the Federal Reserve System, the, the banks, uh, analysts, everyone was cheering that uh, the great moderation, as Alan Greenspan called the long period in which uh, no major crisis had erupted, was here to stay. Well, it wasn't. In, in today's circumstances, you see some excesses. Uh, by the way, I was one of those that predicted uh, the 2006 downward trend in housing when I moved to Washington in 2004 because I saw the prices of houses and I figured out this this cannot this cannot go on. I rented a house that supposedly was worth a million. I mean, the, the market value of that house was a million, and I was uh, the rule of thumb tells you that you should pay a monthly rent of roughly one one percent of the value of the house. I was paying zero point three percent. 
uh, one third of what the the suggested uh, price would be, which means that there was a huge misalignment between the prices of housing and the rental price. That was obvious then. I don't see any any bubble of that size in the current U.S. market. Perhaps the the, the most noticeable bubble is in the stock market. I mean, when you have the stocks of Tesla that yesterday were trading at 115 years value, that means that if you buy a, a share today, given the expected profits of the company, you would require 115 years of uh, uh, dividends to pay for that, uh, for that share. That's ridiculous. I mean, the, the normal number is about 12, 12 times. This is 115 times. There is a bubble in, in the stock exchange. Now, how will it be dealt with? Well, that's, that's very much uncertain. I, there are many elements to worry about. The uh, amount, the piles of debt that have been accumulated by the public sector and the private sector worldwide which, by the way, makes sense if you have virtually zero interest rates. So you can fund all your projects on zero interest rate debt and make 5 10 15%, and that's a killing. That, mean, that means that everyone got, is, is riding on a wave of debt. And that will sooner or later will have to be dealt with, but it's not clear when. I don't see I don't see any element that, that will help burst mobile if there is one in, in a dramatic way in the near future. But no one can tell you that uh, for certain. So um, the best bet is is to be uh, careful about your investments and uh, certainly avoid the, the most speculative ones. And I would not jump into the U.S. stock exchange today under any circumstance because. The probability is that it goes down rather than up. But I don't think uh, a, a uh, precipice is in, in sight anytime immediately. All right. I've run out of questions. Uh, is there anything else that you feel important to mention regarding uh, Mexico, the U.S., uh, anything else or, or any final thoughts to leave us with? Well, I think that, that uh, I would like to see opposition political opposition uh, rebirth in Mexico. The parties that used to exist have virtually disappeared from the map. Uh, there is no one to be consistently analyzing what the government is doing and criticizing it in a constructive way, proposing alternatives, although we know that the, the, this administration will not consider any alternatives to its way of doing things. But nevertheless, I, I, I'm very saddened that uh, there's no strong political opposition. I would hope that there's a rebirth of uh, political parties more combative and clear-headed and with an agenda. And I also hope that the press keeps uh, uh, re remains being critical and uh, doing its job because as uh, as the Washington Post has adopted as his banner, democracy dies in darkness. And this is exactly what the intentions of the AMRO administration are as he <laughs> continues his destruction of Mexican institutions and Mexicans, Mexico's democracy. I think that uh, along with the economy, 
I think that the, that's that's the, the most worrisome part. He himself is very much aware that his changes and reforms can be outdone, undone, and he's trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. And he's doing that by doing exactly what he and his accomplices have done in Mexico City. Once you get to government, as they did in 1997, you don't leave it. You you cling to it, uh, which is exactly their plan for the federal government in the foreseeable future. Uh, and that would mean, uh, you know what, tyranny and autocracy, uh, with or without AMLO in charge, because they are trying to rig the system in order to remain in it for the foreseeable future. So I would hope that a strong reaction to that uh, remains alive and, and well in terms of political parties and uh, the media doing their job. All right. I, I hope Mexico uh, continues to hang in there. Uh, I know Mexicans um, are, are, are tough people. And so I, I hope uh, they, we, now that I'm Mexican, I can say we, myself, uh, continue to, to, to hang in there and, and fight against um, you know what, what, what's going on. Are there any uh, books or websites that you'd like to recommend for us to, to visit? A long list. I will, I will send you a list via email and perhaps you can include it in in this in this podcast yeah I'll, I'll include it in the description so I'll, I'll, I'll put that there I know you write for the Cato Institute Asia Times and, and and other places no no Excelsior in Mexico City I write a weekly column in Excelsior every Friday okay we'll check that out and I'll post the the, the link there for the Spanish uh, speaking folk And all right, muchas gracias uh, again, Dr. Manuel Suarez Mier, for, for being with us on Geopolitics and Empire. It was a pleasure. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast and interview. I would like to remind you that our website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and you can sign up for our mailing list that goes out each weekend with the latest podcast and a long collection of important news headlines. It's good to sign up for the newsletter in case we experience censorship and deplatforming. You can help the Geopolitics and Empire podcast by subscribing to and interacting with all of our channels such as YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, Gab, Minds, and Steemit. You can also help us by leaving a rating and review on your favorite podcast platforms such as iTunes, CastBox, Stitcher, Spreaker, and so on. Finally, if you value our work and our mission and would like to see us continue interviewing experts from across the political spectrum, please consider leaving a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin or becoming a regular monthly supporter on our Patreon. All the links can be found on geopoliticsandempire.com. Thanks for listening.